2 Kings chapter 6, and I will begin in verse number 1, 2 Kings 6 and 1. And the sons of the prophets said unto Elisha, Behold now, the place where we dwell with thee is too straight for us. Let us go, we pray thee, unto Jordan, and take thence every man a beam, and let us make a place there where we may dwell. And he answered, Go ye. And one said, Be content, I pray thee, and go with thy servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them. When they came to Jordan, they cut down wood. But as one was felling a beam, the axe head fell into the water. And he cried and said, Alas, master, for it was borrowed. And the man of God said, where fell it? And he showed him the place, and he cut down a stick, cast it in thither, and the iron did swim. Therefore said he, take it up to thee. And he put out his hand and took it. The message that I have to preach today is this. I want all you students, young adults, to remember this fact. The edge is borrowed. The edge that we have as apostolics is not ours to do with what we would. It came from someone else who owns it. The edge is borrowed. Jesus, we need your help here today. I pray your word would speak to us with life and energy and direction, clarity, focus, and concision. I need your help, Lord. If you'll grace me with your touch today for a little while, I will attempt to be faithful to the word you have committed to me. Open our hearts to receive now, Jesus, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. God bless you. When considered with logical analysis, the mission as given them was practically impossible. Oh, there was no question that it would be carried out. We are told that in no uncertain terms. Matthew 24 and 14 makes this declaration, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. There is no question about the fact that the mission will be accomplished. So the what of the mission is without debate. It is the how of the mission that is nearly overwhelming in magnitude. Matthew's record of it may be more famed, but Mark's account of it is somewhat even more striking due to its concision. Mark 16 and 15, he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Now that rolls off the tongue quite readily, but I'd like you to consider it for just a moment in first century context. This was not an easy mission. The world population of that time is thought to have been about 300 million people. You preached the gospel to every creature. This little ragtag group of maybe a few hundred at most was being tasked to proclaim the gospel to 300 million people scattered afar across a world with countries and civilizations that the average first century Judean did not even know about. There were no effective means of transportation between nations other than sailing vessels for coastal areas, and even those were less than reliable, dependent on the wind's favor to get them there. 
Communication was restricted to written form only, nothing more than quill on papyrus, physically transported across the miles by human carrier. No Twitter. The Roman Empire, with its oppressive policies, extended to the boundaries of the disciples' known worlds. There were no historic, there was no historic Christian tradition on which to depend. When they got to some far country and began to declare the gospel, nobody knew anything about Christianity. They were going to walk into places to proclaim the power of a crucified carpenter to people who have never even heard of him. And those doing the proclamation, well... A somewhat hodgepodge gathering of largely uneducated, poorly funded, newly saved individuals with no formal training. They had no pastors to whom they could go to. None of them could schedule a Starbucks meeting with an elder to draw on his years of experience. There were no such years. Everybody was as new as everybody else. They could not turn to the pages of the New Testament to examine The pattern found there, they couldn't read the book of Acts. They were the book of Acts. There were no books or scrolls or writings in a local Christian bookstore to guide them. Google was not their friend. They were the first, the only ones at that point to ever try their hands at putting together a sermon in New Testament context. They'd never, they were the first. There's no books to read on how to plant a church. Nobody ever planted a church. How do you win the lost? I don't know. Nobody's ever done it. How do you disciple the converted? I don't know. Stan Gleason hadn't written his book yet. <laughs> Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. You, with no skills, no experience, no framework, no structure, no history, you do it. Now, if that doesn't sound impossible to you, and yet, only two chapters after the day of Pentecost, it was said of them that they had filled Jerusalem with their doctrine. It is of this group with no advantages and two and three quarters strikes against them that the eternal word of God records the following when they arrived in Thessalonica. Acts 17 and 6, these that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. How did it happen? How did this group with no advantages and nothing on which to lean impact their world until the testimony preceded them? There's a group of guys walking through the town gates that have turned the world upside down. I will answer that question. They were not left to their own abilities, their own ingenuities, their own ideas, their own programs, their own personalities, or their own charisma. They had an edge. Our mission is the same. We have the same mandate. And to date, let us be brutally honest, we have not yet accomplished it. Preach this gospel in every nation to every person. Now, clearly, the internet and media has made this practical in ways that previously were unimaginable. 
But this, my dear brothers and sisters, that we call the Great Commission is not an easy task. We face a world population of 7.9 billion souls. That number is nearly beyond comprehension. China and India alone each have over 1 billion inhabitants. I thank God for the growth in the church and in the growth in the United Pentecostal Church. But hear me, the world population this year will increase by 80 million souls. I don't know how to break it to you, but we ain't baptized 80 million people. We're losing ground. At present, I'm sorry, don't mean to be, you know, a downer, but we're not even keeping up with the birth rate. Preach the gospel to every creature. We face, and don't worry, it will be more encouraging than it is right at this moment. We face an ever-increasingly secular and amoral culture. One in which truths as basic and as easily comprehended since the world began as one's own gender now are confused and twisted until academia in our world declares that there are at least a hundred genders with which a person can identify. Perversion and wickedness are advancing at a pace that is hard for us to comprehend. The world is changing around us as cultural mores are being discarded as archaic and oppressive. Our nation seems to me to be as divided as at any time in my lifetime. Group identities based on race or gender or political parties or masks or no masks or vaccines or no vaccines, etc., have segmented our society into warring factions which refuse even to see the good in anyone outside their own tribe. Our harvest field is filled with selfish and not committed individuals who scoff at the idea of sacrificing for something greater than yourself or of setting aside your own comfort or desires or ambitions for a higher good. In a divided world, We are called to grow a united church. In a corrupt world, we are to maintain a pure and a holy church. In a self-centered world, we are to develop a consecrated church. And it hardly seems fair. It hardly sounds possible. But to any in the 21st century, And to you wonderful students who in a few years will watch across this platform, get a diploma, and walk out into your kingdom service having been trained for it. To any of you who might get discouraged about the magnitude of our mission, I tell you in the fear of God that what was true for the early church is true of the latter day church. We still have the edge. God 
God's not expecting you to do this on your own. He didn't hand you this mission and say, best of luck. I hope you get through it. He didn't say, I hope you got enough talent. I hope you've got enough ideas. I hope you can generate enough creativity. We are not left to our own devices. We are not left to our own skill set. We are not left to our own... In fact, we're not even in charge of this thing. I read where he said upon this rock, I will build my... I think we say it wrong when we say, I'm trying to build a church in this city, or I'm trying to do build this, or I'm trying to build a church. No, I'm trying to be a tool in the hand of God while God builds his... This is not a natural effort. This is a supernatural effort. And if you've been baptized in the Holy Ghost, you have the edge. I'm pretty sure that tried and tested book still testifies in Ephesians. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. I'm about certain that just after the great and weighty commission to reach this world was given, the Bible records this in Mark 16 and 20, and they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. The simple fact is this, that reaching the world with the gospel would be an insurmountable task if we were on our own. I marvel at the brilliance and the skills and the talents of you young people. You're, you're getting younger all the time. Brother Carson, I didn't know you were going to start letting 12-year-olds into college. I looked up that young man making that organ walk, and I thought, I wonder if his mommy dropped him off here today. It's unbelievable. You, I'm not knocking you. Just, you got to understand, when you're my age, you look like you're eight, you know? You're fantastic, and I wish I had your ability, but I just, it, I'm sorry, you just... So I, I marvel. Okay, I got to try to get it back now. Hey, girls, when he's 70, he'll look like he's 50. I'm just saying. And so while I marvel at your skills, I'm not trusting in your skills. While I thank God for your abilities, I'm not trusting in your abilities. While I thank God for all of that, when I sit back and look toward the sunset years of my life a couple decades away, I don't have hope in the church that is going to follow me because I think you're smarter than us or more talented than us. I say to you the reason... The reason you're going to carry out this mission, the reason you're going to see a revival of earth-shaking scope is because you have something that nobody else out there has. You've got something the charismatics can't match. You've got something the denominal world cannot equal. You have the edge. I tell you today that we are not like any other religious organization. 
And I'm not just talking about the United Pentecostal Church, though I'm in that up to my neck. The church is bigger than any organization. His church is not compared with any political movement. It cannot be compared with any grassroots initiative. It's something totally different than the Tea Party or Black Lives Matter. It is not a societal movement. It is an eternal force that God has turned loose in the earth to carry out a mission that would be impossible in any other setting. There is something about his church which distinguishes it from everything else on the planet. What is impossible for others is practical for the church. What is out of reach without him is in our hands because of him. We have something that cannot be replaced. We have the edge. Here's what I know. No matter how hard this task may be, his church will advance. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in every nation for a witness. You say, how's it going to be preached in Afghanistan? I don't know, but God said it would happen, so it's going to happen. How's it going to be preached in North Korea? I don't know, but God said it's going to happen, so it's going to happen. I can't explain it, but there's going to be an Elijah rise up with power, a prophetic function that will march in and stare down Kim Jong-un and say, I don't care what you do to me. Here's the word of the Lord for this pagan nation. I, I don't care how hard it looks. It's going to get done. I don't care how impossible it seems. It's going to get done. And you are the generation on whom the ends of the earth has come. You are going to march out and fulfill his mission. You are going to do what others say cannot be done. So I will spend the balance of my time today positioning myself to be criticized for candy stick preaching. But it's a risk I freely bear. Because I want to speak to us to remind us, but especially I want to invest in these students before me. That you are poised to advance out to confront an impossible mission with a God for whom the word impossible is just another way of saying he can do it. And so I choose to remind you of some things today. The first is this. His name is our edge. One reason that you could be assured that you're going to have victory is because we don't go in our own name and we don't go in the name of the United Pentecostal Church. We go in a name that's higher than every name that's ever named. I do pray that we have not gotten over. I pray we never get over just how magnificent and wonderful and powerful is the name of Jesus. Why do I have confidence in you, young man, that you're going to reach a city for Christ? Because you're going in the name of Jesus. Why do I believe, young lady, you're going to make a kingdom impact? Because you're going in the name of Jesus. I don't know your name, but your name doesn't matter. And I don't know your name, but your name doesn't matter. We're not doing it for our names. We're, we're going in the name of Jesus. When that angel first whispered to Mary what her baby was to be called, 
And when the angel confirmed that to Joseph, there was unleashed into the spiritual atmosphere a new power that has never before been experienced. You hear me? I believe what I'm saying. When that name is spoken, demonic powers tremble in recognition of its might. When that name is spoken, sickness cowers in submission and every doctor's expertise melts away. And when that name is spoken, even death knows it must bow and surrender its supremacy we don't go into this battle unarmed we have the edge you're bigger than me you've been a man of war since your youth I'm just a kid that's been out on the backside of the hillside watching sheep but you come to me with a sword and a spear but I've got the edge I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts You've been lame since your mother's womb. We were just going in for a season of prayer. But silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus, rise. We're not on our own. Don't you feel helpless? Don't you feel overwhelmed? We've got the edge. You come to me with a secular worldview. But I come to you in the name of the Lord. You come to me with a post-religious America, but I come to you in the name of the Lord. You come to me with statistics that say we can't do it, but I come to you in the name of the Lord. And after the power of that name has that ex-lame man running, leaping, and praising God, then I will explain to you as Peter did in Acts 3.16, and his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong whom ye see and know. It's not a magical phrase. It's not an inspired abracadabra. It's a declaration that I am praying with the authority of Christ himself behind me. I am an ambassador for Christ. You show me a U.S. ambassador that walks into the palace of some head of state in some country. And when he speaks, he speaks as the extended voice of the president of the United States. When he speaks, the might and the weight of our military stands behind him. When he speaks, the full might and effort of this nation has his backing. And so the scriptures tell us that whatever you do, in word or in deed, do it in the name of Jesus. You, I hope you you may be an 18 year old from a broken home you may be a first generation apostolic that's only making C minuses in your classes but when you march into that lady's prison next week to preach the gospel you carry with you the full weight and authority of heaven's kingdom behind you you preach in Jesus name you sing in Jesus name you teach in Jesus name you go in Jesus name and I don't care how big the task is we have the edge His spirit is our edge. Why is this mission doable? We're filled with his spirit. There is nothing quite like the power of the spirit of God in a life. That moment when someone breaks out speaking with other tongues and we know that they've received the Holy Ghost. Let's not forget what the Bible said about it. Ye shall receive 
I said, we don't usually do that. I know you quote the scripture. But we tell somebody about the Holy Ghost. What we'll say is, oh man, it's joy like you've never felt. It's peace like you've never experienced. And that's all true. And that's what they need first. But for those of us who've been doing this a while, he never said, you shall receive joy after that the Spirit comes upon you. He never said, you shall receive peace. No, no, no. He said, I'll tell you what you're going to get. I've given you a mission that's too big for you, so I'm going to give you something to carry it out. I'm going to give I'm going to give you power, power to tread on serpents and scorpions, power to lay hands on the sick and see them recover, power to cast out devils in Walmart parking lots, power to pray people through in the subway, power to be able to pray people through on city buses. I give you power to carry out my mission. There is nothing I'm sorry, Luke 24 and 49. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tear you in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with happy feeling. <laughs> Holy Ghost isn't just meant to make you go. Holy Ghost make you rise up like Sister Satan talked about. Give me a devil to choke. Not talking about being mean, but the kingdom of God suffering violence and the violent take it by force. And we need a group of young people to rise up and say, I'm going to take a stand for this thing and I'm going to fight hell in the prayer room and I'm going to go out on my mission with power of the Holy Ghost. Watch, watch this, watch. That word power. That word power in Acts 1 and 8, you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost come upon you. That word power, of course, is dunamis. We all know that word. And, 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 and we always talk about it, come, you know, like the word dynamite. I got news for you. That word dunamis, something more, there's more nuance to it than just explosive energy. You study the word, here's what it means. The inherent ability or nature of something or someone. The dunamis of an elephant is strength. The dunamis of a cheetah is speed. It's the inherent ability of that, of, of that thing. God says you're going to receive the inherent essence of my ability and strength. He's walking through the streets one day and that little lady reached up and touched the hem of his garment and he turned around and said, somebody touched me because virtue flowed out of me. Look at it. Look at the word. Dunamis flowed out of me. Somebody touched me and the essence of who I am changed their life. Now I'm going to send you out to touch them. So I'm going to give you my dunamis. I want you to understand when you get up to preach, son, you have the inherent essence of the power of Jesus resting in your soul. Young lady, you've got the inherent energy and ability and character of Jesus Christ resting. I need somebody to believe this. When you step into the pulpit, you do it with power. When you walk in the hospital room, you do it with power. When you plant a church, you do it with power. When you sing a song, you do it with power. Because otherwise, otherwise, you're only going to get what your talent can produce. Paul, you stood on Mars Hill. And you preached a masterpiece, eloquent, 
well-reasoned, culturally relevant. You brought in that idol to the unknown God they'd been worshiping. You even quoted a portion, though some people don't know it, you quoted a portion of a Greek poet. It was a brilliant sermon. And yet, you didn't plant a church in Athens. There's no book to the Athenians. And the Bible says, and he departed Athens and went to Corinth. On his way, he's going, man, I gave it my best shot and nothing happened. Now I'm heading into what is arguably the most wicked city of its day. Now what? I can't preach any better than that. I can't sing any better than that. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so he said in my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. I don't care how pretty you preach. Get in touch with the power. I don't care if every note is perfect. Get in touch with the power. The only way you're going to finish this mission is to do it with power of the Holy Ghost. That spirit is our edge. His name is our edge. His spirit is our edge. His truth is our edge. Perhaps nothing so distinguishes us from the rest of the religious world. Perhaps nothing distinguishes you anymore from 100,000 other Bible colleges and seminaries out there than the fact of the truth that we preach. This church is singular. There is nothing else like it. This church is not bound by organizational lines. It is bound by doctrinal lines. What defines the church is not a fellowship card. It's a doctrinal purity. Well, the doctrine is the oneness of God in his name. The doctrine of the death, the burial, and the resurrection. The doctrine of the new birth and the doctrine of a holy life. The only way you're going to reach this world is if you keep this doctrine. Yeah. Yeah. All right. How did the early church turn their world upside down? Acts 2 and 42. Can you throw that one on the screen for me? Acts 2 and 42 says this. And they continued steadfastly. In the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and prayers. But I would point out what was first. Because I agree with you, Brother Staten. You've got to have fellowship in your church. You're not strong without it. But if we have fellowship without doctrine, we're nothing but the YMCA. That order is not by chance. I don't care how warm the fellowship is in a church if it's left the doctrine. I don't care how many prayer meetings you may have if you perverted the doctrine. There's no other way to build the church. There's no other way to fulfill the mission. There's no other way but pure doctrine that converts sinners. Romans. 6, 17. But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine that was delivered to you. The thing that breaks the shackles of sin is the delivery of doctrine. 
and all that runs counter to everything in our world that tries to tell us in the greater religious community, well, you need to be seeker-friendly. Don't you want sinners to be comfortable in your church? No. I want sinners to feel welcome in my church. I don't want them to feel comfortable. I want to preach doctrine until conviction brings hot tears down their cheek and they come running up to the altar to say, I got to be set free from sin. And that's not going to happen if I water down the doctrine. I want to pause a moment to say something very clearly. This doctrine is not a barrier to growth. I'm going to come down here and sweat on some of you college students in a minute. I don't care if anybody else over, over out of college amens this or not, but you listen to me. Don't you let that lying voice out of hell tell you that when you get out of here, the only way you're going to reach a city is if you preach something less than John 3 and Acts 2. That's a lie out of hell. You'll never convert a sinner. You'll just get up a gathering of sinners that are still as lost as they were when they walked inside your church. The only way to set them free from sin is to preach a pure doctrine, and the doctrine does not keep See, I'm sorry, but there are those folks that try to say, well, if you preach all that hard doctrine, folks won't come and they're just going to go to hell. I beg to differ with you. 1 Timothy 4 and 16, take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this you will save yourself and those that hear thee. Doctrine doesn't keep people out of the church. Doctrine keeps people out of hell. Preach it, believe it, live it, stay true to it. I cannot, I cannot tell you how it sickens me to hear deceptions puked out of the mouth of some apostate who tries to tell me that our dogmatic approach to doctrine is simply because we haven't matured yet. Oh, when you grow up a little bit in Christ, you'll understand grace like we do. And then you won't believe all that stuff you preach is really necessary. You just need to mature. Well... Let's see what the scripture has to say on the subject. Ephesians 4 and 14, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. It's not the mature that move from doctrine to doctrine. It's immature children that move from doctrine to doctrine. The mature plant their feet in the blood of Christ and say, I know what I believe. I know what I've been taught and I'm gonna preach this doctrine so I can reach my world. That is our edge. You can be seated just a moment. I'm almost done. When the son of the prophet was felling a tree, the head of his axe flew off, landed in the river. Now that was no small thing. I know for you, it's just, I'll run down Home Depot, get another one. You only have to go back a few chapters before that to find out there was no smith in Israel. Philistines had stopped them, lest they make swords. Couldn't find an axe head just every place. In fact, in fact, there, there were no new edges. The only edge out there was one that your grandfather had. 
the only edge out there was one that your daddy gave you. They weren't making new edges. And it's in the water. Now what's he going to do? Now, now please understand, this wasn't the end of the college dormitory construction process. It just got longer and more difficult. I mean, I'm not discounting the loss, but he could have shared in that scenario, he could have shared somebody else's ax. He, he, he could have just stopped chopping, you know, and, and carry the wood that another cut down. But it is his cry that is instructive to me. Alas, master! It's borrowed! You don't understand! It's not mine! I've just been entrusted to it by the one that owns it! I've been entrusted with something that I can't afford! I've had my hands on something that I can't replace! And the one who owns it and the one who gave it to me is going to want to know exactly how, why, and where I lost it. I had the edge, but I lost it. I believed this when I was 12, but I got in Bible school and I, I lost it. I believed it in Bible school, but when I got out in real full-time practical ministry, the weariness of it, I lost it. The thing that drove him to seek counsel from the prophet and to do whatever was necessary to get it back was the fact that he recognized that the edge that he had been using and the edge by which he had been benefiting was only borrowed. I would choose to remind you today that this is his church. The edge that we enjoy in this spiritual conflict, not ours. The name, his. The spirit, his. The truth, his. They have been given to us in trust, both by the owner and by those who have used them long before us. Just a few weeks ago, anybody here in California? Any Californians? Yeah. Just a few weeks ago, just a couple weeks ago, we buried Paul Price. It's 99 and a half, almost 100, as in case you're mathematically challenged. <laughs> we are not certain, Pastor Carson, but I can't find anybody that knows any different. We think it may very well be that he was the last preacher who was licensed at the merger. There were others who were there, but we can't seem to find anybody that knows of anybody who in 1945, when the United Pentecostal Church was formed, he may have been the last. If you look at the handle, his fingerprints are on it. If you look at that old wooden handle, you'll see the sweat stains of some old pioneers that they threw tomatoes at when they preached this. This physical act that I'm using right here, gentlemen, this, 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 I mean, literally the physical thing I'm holding right here belongs to Daniel Scott. Retired missionary from Ecuador, apostle to that nation. A man who gets up still well into his 90s every morning at five o'clock to pray. Once a quarter, we had six o'clock prayer for three days prayer and fasting at the church every morning. For, and he felt guilty because he was sleeping in. It's his acts. 
If I were to lose that on this trip, do you know how horrible I'd feel? Because of how much regard I have for that man? You know how terrible I'd feel if I couldn't return it to the one who entrusted it? I preach to you that this edge that's been given to us by our elders, when you get a diploma in your hands, don't lay down the axe. When you get a church in your hands, don't lay down the edge. When you get your own business card with your name on it, don't you forget that there's some sweat-stained handprints on this thing of somebody that came before you. Look at it and understand the value. Stand with me. Because out there somewhere, there's a woodcutter whose name will never be known. He never felled trees on the platform at Mark. No large crowd ever watched him swing the ax in that little church plant where you and your family heard the gospel for the first time. But he held it and he used it faithfully. And you and I gripped that edge that is merely borrowed from those who had it long before us. And from our master who gave it to them and to us. And I tell you the reason that you must desperately keep tabs on that edge is that it is only borrowed. Please notice with me for one moment, and I'm done. Musicians get in place. Thank you. He only lost it after it got loose. The first time he swung that axe and that head started to wobble a little bit. He should have gone to the prophet right then and said, this thing's getting a little loose in my hands and I don't want to lose it. It's not mine. Would you help me tighten it back down again? The first time your mind starts to really trouble you about, well, I really don't know if he's one or three. I plead with you, don't keep swinging that thing with the head that's loose. Go get with one of your teachers. Go get with your pastor and sit down with him and say, this thing's getting a little loose in my hands, but it doesn't belong to me, and I can't swing one day and lose it. But because he didn't do so, tragedy struck. Oh, it didn't happen right away. He didn't become an apostate the first week he graduated. He didn't turn his back on his spiritual heritage in one week. But there came a week that he looked down after one blow, after one sermon, after one service, only to discover that he was beating that tree with a stick. The edge was gone. And it was never his to start with. I plead with you. If you ever start to lose it, I pray you're arrested by the fact that this edge is only borrowed. The name, the spirit, and the truth are not yours. Hear me well. You will not damage them nor destroy them. They will outlast you. Psalm 135, 13, thy name, O Lord, endureth forever. Hebrews 9.14 calls him an eternal spirit. Psalm 117 and 2, the truth of the Lord endureth forever. His name, his spirit, and his truth will outlive you. One way or another, the edge will remain. The only question is, will you seek out to fulfill this otherwise impossible mission with your own ability or with his? You can reach the world. Look at me. You will reach the world if
I love this Jesus name message. I love this Holy Ghost experience. I love the truth of the gospel. And I don't care how many people throw it down and try to tell me you can swing an empty axe stick a lot faster. I'm going to keep what my elders handed me. I'm going to keep everything that's been handed me because this edge is what's going to make the difference. And I can't let let it go into the currents of this world. It's only borrowed. I'm asking for college students to run to the front of this place and put your face on the carpet and recommit yourself to this message and recommit yourself to this name and recommit yourself to this truth against someday when the enemy will try to rip this out of your hands and throw it into the depths of the current of the river of this world. I plead with you when it starts getting loose, go let somebody help you. This thing is only borrowed. There needs to be a loud prayer meeting coming. Hey, you high school students, you're welcome to come too. I don't mean to leave you out. If there's a high school student back there that says, I want to be an apostolic, I'm going to carry out his mission. I'm not in college yet, but there's a calling on my life. I plead with you to come down here and recommit yourself. I know it's crowded. And I know it will be hard, but I need some of you whose fingerprints are on the axe to get out of your seat and fight your way down. I don't care if you have to go all the way around. I don't care if you have to come up across the platform to get to them. I need some of you to come down here and lay hands on these college students, on these high school students. Do whatever you have to do to get down here amongst them. They are the key. They're going to reach this world. They've got the edge.